What's up, everyone? It's the Love, the Jam, the podcast. I'm Shapan, coming to you as always with Rob. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, excited the draft is over. I was at a hotel at the Clippers draft night party for like eight hours yesterday. Uh, it's always a long night, very fun, but very, very exhausting. And it's actually way more exhausting for our guest, who I will now let you introduce. Yeah, we, have, we also have Trevor here at Illegal Screens on Twitter uh, from Fear the Sword fame, uh, The Step Back, and also Clips Nation fame. He wrote for, the, for Clips Nation uh, a bit ago, too. How are you doing, Trevor? Doing good. Uh, glad to be, I guess, back with you guys. The Clippers are not my first team, but one of probably my top five in the league that I, that I follow. So um, excited to be on with you guys and, and talk a little bit about uh, the new Florida State Seminoles that you guys have. This is, of course, a Florida State Seminoles podcast now, and I'm excited for you guys to uh, move from one coast to the other. Welcome to Florida State is what I like to say to this podcast. And uh, we have a lot to say about a very scrappy couple of Florida State Seminoles that really, I'll be honest with you, I had very little idea. I mean, Kevin Gelly, I guess I knew a little bit about, but that, that's mostly from mock drafts. We can start with him. Fiondu, Kevin Gelly, I hope I'm saying his name right. Um, so... This is probably our pick with a little bit more upside. 21-year-old, average 13 and 6, uh, pretty decent splits, 50, 37% from three, 76% from the line. I mean, honestly, from the most part, all I really got from his highlights, his comps, the kind of ceiling idea I got from him. And I always, I always loved Serge Ibaka when he was prime Oklahoma Oklahoma City. I love the idea of a three-point shooting big man who could guard the interior, mostly because I always wanted somebody like that for Blake Griffin. I don't know if that's the best comp, and I'll kind of let you talk about him a little bit, Trevor. What do you think about this pick? What do you think about his upside? Is he somebody that can contribute right away? And what, what's, his, uh, what's his ideal spot uh, with the Clippers? Yeah, so I think Calvin Gelly is a guy who is going to be a contributor right away in some capacity. He His foremost skill is just the energy that he brings on the floor. He is constantly making things happen on both ends, one way or another, sometimes to the detriment of his team, but um, is, is a guy who is going to be just constantly involved in the play, like a true energy big that's a term that gets thrown around a lot but he is a guy who is firmly in the mold of like a John Collins like a Joakim Noah like a guy who is just going to constantly be involved in the play on both ends when he's on the floor um he's a guy who is primarily like a finisher type but has shown the ability to kind of space from the mid-range a little bit um he has great rebounding skills and also provides a little bit of rim protection um, and also some good space defense. So I think he's going to be a true two-way player, um, providing a little bit of value on both ends. The offensive end, I'm a little bit more skeptical on kind of what type of value he's going to be able to bring to the team. But overall, this is a guy who I think doesn't have necessarily a high ceiling, but definitely is going to kind of be like a quality bench player um, in the league for probably a few, at least a few years. Yeah, Rob, you mentioned his downside. Let's uh, we can talk about this a little bit too. We were kind of concerned about his, you know, assist to turnover ratio, which is always, you know, a kind of an interesting stat when you look at a guy. Do you have anything else to kind of contribute as far as 
you know, talking about that a little bit and, you know, maybe the little bit of qualms that I know your article expressed a little bit on Clips Nation. Yeah. So this draft, I didn't do like a ton of research and film watching. I mostly just watch Michigan games, uh, go blue. And, you know, every once in a while I'd watch big college games, you know, as I started doing research, you know, the statistical model stuff, I go back and look at prospects who are interesting uh, Calvin Gelly was interesting for the wrong reasons, which is that he has a really, really low assist rate uh, and a not crazy high turnover rate. But, you know, as you mentioned, the assisted turnover ratio is, is really bad. And just watching film, like you can, it's not one of those things where the eye test and the numbers kind of don't, uh, don't agree. They definitely do agree. Uh, not great, like vision, not great, you know, reading of the floor and, like, this is just my bias, because those are the type of players I like, even if it's a guy who's not actually that great. Like, I was all in on Pat McCaw, because I was like, you know, this guy might not have, like, a ton of offensive creation, but he's a guy who, like, seems smart. He can, like, make plays in the flow of an offense. I really don't necessarily see that from Cobb and uh, but, you know, he's, I think he might be fairly new to basketball. Um, I don't think he's one of these guys who's been playing since he was, like, five or six, um, so I think that could play into it, but yeah, I was not, my first impression was not being super excited, um, because while I do think he has some stuff to offer, um, you know, I generally think the style that Doc Rivers has implemented is, you know, an offense where kind of everybody is involved and everybody needs to, if not make plays, at least be willing to pass and, and make reads quickly. Um, you know, we saw how even when it was a guy as good as Danilo Gallinari, when he held the ball too long, the offense really bogged down and it was yeah. not pretty. Um, so, you know, it, the offense kind of relies on flow like that. And I'm just not sure he can contribute. But the energy stuff is is awesome to hear. And uh, yeah, that's mainly my downside is I just don't know about his fit really um, offensively just in the flow of an offense and in terms of like making plays. But I mean, I only saw like two games of his, so it could be very, very off there. Yeah. Trevor, do you have anything else to kind of, it's kind of concerning. He does seem slightly black hole-ish and that, that wasn't really the Clippers forte last year. Um, I love hearing about the energy, but yeah, I guess that's a bit concerning as far as his offensive game and his maybe slight tendency to stall an offense uh, is that a major concern we should maybe th- think of having him going forward on a team like the Clippers where everybody wants to get a touch? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to have a positive assist-to-turnover ratio when you don't have any of the former. Um, so, he, I mean, he posted a worse uh, posted a worse assist rate than John Collins did in college, and Collins, I think at one point, had 10 assists in 800 minutes, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is horrible. Yes. Um, but I think that Kevin Gelly kind of played the similar role to Collins on offense where he was not asked to move the ball. He was a guy who, when he got touches, he was going to go look to get a bucket. And that's the primary utility of having him. He is a firm play finisher in the way that like a Boban is in the way that uh, Montrezl Harrell has has been in his career. Obviously, he's gotten a little bit better at reading the floor and moving the ball um, this season. But, you know, early Harrell was definitely the same way. I think that really his value is going to come – his value in terms of what he contributes overall to the offense is going to come in providing a little bit of spacing on pick and pops and then also just his ability to – 
free guards for on screens is really strong. He's one of the better screeners in the class. Um, gets uses his his wide frame really well to to free up guards, and then just the roll gravity that he brings is is going to be pretty immense. I mean, this is a guy who primarily played in kind of like a post up spot in the dunker spot in college, but like projects to be a very solid pick and roll finisher in the league. And I think that he's going to provide that vertical spacing that. Maybe, you know, he, maybe he doesn't provide the ball movement that you need, but definitely is going to provide threats to open up space for other players in other ways rather than kind of the traditional metrics, A, standing out on the three-point line, and B, um, passing and moving the ball within the offense. Yeah, I think we can talk a little bit about his teammate now, who I know even less about, Terrence Mann. Uh, 22-year-old, plays small forward, 11.5 points a game, 6.5 boards, uh, 2.5 assists. Shot a pretty good 39%, but only on two threes a game, 50% from the field, 79% from the free throw line. All of these splits are all very nice for big men slash swings. I guess he's more of a, a swing player. But honestly, from what I saw from Terrence Mann, my biggest my – biggest, interest in him is as a defender with size and somebody who can also contribute. I guess if whatever offense he gives, kind of like Arson Darius Thornwell, who's kind of a deeper cut, but people listening to this pod can probably appreciate him. So Darius Thornwell has had great motor and great defensive instincts, but doesn't really have the size as somebody like Mann has. And I think that's kind of the role we're interested in him as um, on the Clippers. What, what are your takes on Terrence Mann, really? I don't know if many of us really know too much about him. <laughs> Go ahead, Trevor. Yeah, so I saw him at uh, the Portsmouth Invitational and got to see him live once, which was which was valuable. Um, my, I think that he's honestly kind of like the opposite of Thornwell as a defensive prospect, where Thornwell is like a guy who doesn't have great size but has just immaculate technique and uses his strength really well to be like a valuable defender on switches and and to be able to deny the rim to opponents whereas man is much less technique based and much more just athleticism based i mean he's a guy who can recover about as well as anybody else can in this draft and he is able to use his length and his agility to be able to stay in front of guys and make really good really good plays on the defensive end technique wise though he's a little bit of a mess um consistently gives up uh gives up an open lane to the basket when he's closing out in particular that's something that i think he's going to struggle with early on but um i think on the defensive end you know, he he was a pretty strong defender at, at Florida State, not one of the best players in this draft class, I would I would argue. But you know, there's a there's a path to him being a really useful defender, particularly one on one in isolation. He's a guy that I think you could have defend down a position and use his size and use his athleticism to really have him work to stay in front of guys and and be able to defend at the a point of attack in a way that you know maybe some of the other guys on the Clippers roster aren't necessarily able to. Is there a comp that you might have for him? Um, that's, in- that's interesting. I, I comp him very closely to just in terms of his overall kind of the feel that I get watching him. He's very close to Josh Jackson um, um, mm. who plays for the Suns um, just in terms of his role on offense and then also kind of the things that he's strong at on defense. I think that there's definitely something to be said about 
man kind of thinking the game a little bit better than Jackson, which low bar, I know, but um, <laughs> he, I think can, he, I think can be a little bit more valuable than Jackson in, in that regard, because he is, you know, going to be, I, like I said, a pretty good point of attack defender. And then on offense is going to be a guy who's going to really going to be solid at moving the ball. Um, and then if he shoots, um, can potentially be like even a secondary playmaker. So I think that there's a path to him being a probably less talented version of Jackson, but also like a much more effective version of Jackson um, mm. in terms of skills, that same style of skill set. Rob, on your article, you kind of mentioned uh, the idea of man having capability of contributing pretty immediately to this Clipper team, maybe even uh, more immediately than his uh, his counterpart at FSU, who also came to the team. Uh, what do you think about Terrence Mann for this team and maybe his role on the Clippers next year? Yeah, I mean, I think skill-wise, he could be there. I think opportunity-wise, he probably will be in Agua Caliente a lot of the year. In terms of contributing, I was thinking more of just the Cinderius Thornwell, Doc bringing him in for like 40 seconds at the end of a quarter to play defense. Um, and especially with his with his size – He's a guy who could throw in on inbounder. Um, you know, they used to have Boban. They won't have a Boban again this year. Uh, but he's definitely, I could see him being like that type of player. You bring him in just for like certain defensive possessions, even though, you know, the technique is, is a little raw. He's just bigger than any of the Clippers' other wings. I mean, I guess Wilson Chandler technically was bigger this year, but he was also awful especially yeah. defensively. Let's not mention him again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, forgotten. Um, so I could see contributing like that. I didn't mean like real rotation. He's getting 15 minutes a game. Sure. Right. I right. think tab is or fee as Lawrence Frank was calling him yesterday uh, is more likely <laughs> that type of player just because of the Clippers roster and they're pretty thin on centers right now. Um, but I like man. I actually think, his offense is, you know, as Trevor said, is possibly a little undervalued. Uh, he's definitely not really a shot creator right now, especially because, you know, the shot is iffy. Uh, but he makes smart plays. Um, I really like how he moves off the ball. Uh, he's big. He's very athletic. So he's a guy who can run those pet lob plays for uh, when he back cuts. Um, good in transition. I mean, the Clippers don't always play with the pace we want them to. Uh, but, you know, you have a guy like him with, you know, Shamit and Shea with Shamit running to a corner. Uh, he runs the lane. You know, he could be a guy who throws down some lobs, gets the crowd excited. Uh, but like like Trevor said, I think really his NBA career will probably swing on that outside shot. You know, he hit 39% of his threes this year, uh, but it was on only 2.1 attempts per game, which is, you know, just barely more than what Shea took in the NBA this year, which as Clippers fans will attest is not very many. Um, so it, it really depends. And he was barely a shooter at all in his first three seasons. Um, in his junior, he started taking slightly more, but they, I, he shot like 25%, I think on like 1.5 attempts. So a fairly big leap, again, very limited sample size at that rate. It's, I think the difference is like four or five threes made or whatever could be the huge difference. Um, so if he can hit threes, I think you could have like a really nice NBA career. If not, you know, he could be again, not necessarily in how he plays, but just the type of role he has, um, like a Cinderius thorn role. Maybe he's like on the fringes, uh, you know, he plays with, you know, just because he's smart and he's has some size and quickness on the wing. 
Um, but I actually like him a fair amount. Again, like he's the exact type of player I do like, though. Um, like I'm a sucker for wings in general. Um, they're more valuable in today's NBA than any other, you know, type of player, probably, especially big wings. You know, if he fills out a little bit, he's theoretically a guy who you could see guarding, um, you know, like a Paul George or Kawhi Leonard or whatever, just because he has the size. And as Clippers fans saw this year, you know, their best, best perimeter defender was usually Pat Beverly. And as great as he was, you know, he, when you're giving up eight inches, it's hard to do a lot. Um, so he could be valuable, um, but we'll see. Like, again, the shot is concerning. Um, and I think he's going to spend a lot of the year in Agua Caliente. I'm sure they're going to have, you know, very tailored coaching and development paths for him to become a better shooter. Uh, just like last year, they had Jerome Robinson work on his, you know, ball handling and playmaking because that's the role they kind of want for him. Uh, so we'll see. But overall, I was I was fine with the draft. I guess I could say, you know, to Trevor, like, what if, you know, if you were giving out a draft grade, like I know they're always super reactionary. Uh, you know, nobody really knows, especially the night of. But, like, what, what grade do you think you would give the Clippers for the draft they had? And, you know, were there any guys available at those spots you think would have been better? So I think in terms of the players that they drafted, I would give them probably, like, a solid, like, B+. Plus. Like, these were not – like these are not like earth shattering picks. I mean, you, you, you're picking like 27th and you're picking in the middle of the second round. Like neither of these are going to be like expected to be huge difference makers. And I think that they got pretty solid players for where they were drafted. Um, but I think the caveat to throw in is I really don't think they needed to trade up to get Calvin Galley. And I really dislike them trading a 2021st to get in and get the 27th pick of this draft. I think that that is a very rough move because the 2020 draft is going to be a lot better than the 2019 draft. And there is a realistic possibility, depending on how the off off season goes, if the Clippers strike out on their free agent targets, there's a realistic possibility that that's going to end up being a pretty nice pick in 2020 in a deeper draft and a better draft overall that they gave up to get Calvin Gelly at it's 20. The, it's, the, it's the Sixers pick though, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, that's, that's a little bit better, but still, I mean, right. The seventh pick this year is probably going to be worth a little bit less than the 27th pick next year, even mm-hmm. if, or wherever the Sixers end up picking it, even in the twenties. I, I really think that, that was kind of like a, a little bit of a head scratcher in terms of kind of valuing your long-term assets, because not only could it, not only is that probably a better pick next year, it also is like, you know, it's another tangible asset that I think that is worth more than Cobb and would be worth in terms of potential trades that they could, they could do this year. So I, I really don't know that I that I agree with the decision making that led to them picking Calvin Gelly, but in terms of them actually making a good pick once they got there, I think that that's actually a pretty solid decision. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think all of us were kind of concerned when we saw Future First uh, as what we gave up to yeah, get a twenty. After that Kyrie Irving deal. Oh boy, yeah. Don't <laughs> even you. You're. I'm sure you're familiar with that Kyrie Irving deal. Not not yeah. our best moment, but it was a different GM. So you, you, you made a better decision than Phoenix did. I got to tell you that oh. several better decisions than Phoenix did. I would argue. <laughs> oh boy. 
So how, how did you like your draft, by the way? I'm, I'm assuming, are you a Cavs fan first? Yes, and so, I hated it. Um, you hated it? Oh, no. The, the best thing that you want to do when you bring in a college coach who had an offense at Michigan that was very predicated on ball movement is to bring in two ball-stopping guards that can't pass to compliment your ball stopping guard that can't pass and for one of those two guys to be the guy who clashed constantly with his college coach at USC. Oh boy, um, Kevin Porter Jr. What a, what a, what a personality. Yeah. And, and trading for four second round picks and $5 million to be able to make that decision. Um, it, it was a rough night. I was on a live stream with, uh, with a Cavs podcast last night and it was a, we were not in good shape at the end of the evening. <laughs> um, not not super excited about where uh, where this year is going to be impacting the rebuild. Um, very likely, very negatively. So uh, not great. I would so are, say. You, are you guys going to play Garland and Sexton together? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they'll oh, definitely boy. play together, which is going to be a mess. Um, oh boy! Can Gar- can Garland defend? I can't even. I don't even know. I think that I think that he's fine as a, as a defender. I think that he has value, particularly the fact that he can play a little bit off ball. So I think that he'll be okay mm-hmm. in that regard. But uh, you know, he, he's like 175 pounds and doesn't really have like the frame to be able to add a ton of strength. So there are concerns. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do the stats back up how bad of a defender Colin Sexton is? I I've only seen him sparingly, and I've not been impressed. I think he he's he's quite bad on that end, but I, I don't know. You're probably more familiar with him than me and Rob are. How how excited are you in general about Colin Sexton? I am more excited about Colin Sexton probably than I am about Darius Garland, um, and that's just a personal preference. I think that Sexton's game, I while they're very similar, I think that Sexton his shooting is real translates a little bit better in the future. Um, plus, him having a six seven wingspan and being having the reputation of being this kind of borderline sociopathic work ethic guy. Mm-hmm. I think that he's going to be a salvageable defender, even though he was terrible this year. Thinking about point guard defenses as a rookie, unless you are Gilgis Alexander, who is a complete outlier, like it's very hard to be a positive as a rookie at the point guard position. And most of them are very, very, very bad. Um, so I don't put a ton of stock in his rookie numbers. And I think that he'll be fine mm-hmm. on that end. And I'm excited about the potential that he has as a shooter because I think that there is real tangible evidence that that is going to carry over, even if not to the level that it did the last two months of the season, um, to carry over into being like positive growth for him as, as a shooter, which opens up a lot more for his game. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I I think we can get to. Do we have any Twitter questions we'll about the draft? Couple. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Um, so from, hold on, I'm scrolling down. Uh, from at uh, Bin Thrifty uh, Thomas Sincara, uh, he asks higher upside of the Harold Cab duo as NBA centers or as bouncers at LA nightclubs. <laughs> and uh, um, <laughs> I'm going to say as NBA centers just because. <laughs> uh, Harold is already really good, but uh, they'd be very intimidating bouncers. I would not go to that club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you want to answer that, you can, Trevor. But <laughs> yeah, the the thing about the thing about bouncers is you kind of have it's kind of like being an NFL defensive end. Like you can't be too long, or else you're not going to actually be able to use your upper body effectively in a scrap. So. 
I'm going to go with centers as well because I think that while they will look intimidating, if there's somebody who actually does want to throw hands, I think that they're going to be at a little bit of a disadvantage. How how uh, can we play those two together? You think, Trevor? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so either. Okay. Uh, and then one more question is also from Ben Thrifty, which is uh, also what would you put the odds of man being better than Cab? Uh, so I'll let you go first on this one. I, I don't know. I don't think – I don't. I just don't think that man is going to be able to shoot at the NBA level. Like, I don't, I don't trust the jumper. And if – the thing about him is that if he doesn't have the jumper going, like I referenced Josh Jackson earlier, if he doesn't have the jumper going, his passing doesn't matter. Um, and that that's – because it's the whole, it's the threat of him being able to drive against a closeout that has to be hard because he is going to hit an open shot otherwise that is going to open up his ability to be able to create in those spot-up situations. And I just don't know that he's going to be able to get there. And that's going to make him a, a really big um, question mark on the offensive end, whereas Cobb, I think, I think we know what he's going to be, even if it's not something that's super exciting. And even if he's just kind of a poor man's John Collins, like that guy's going to get you points and rebounds at the very least pretty reliably. Yeah, I, I'd probably agree. Um, I like man a fair amount, but yeah, I mean, I'd say the odds are, are decently low. I'd say like 20% maybe he's better than, than cab or fee, whatever, whatever Clippers fans decide to call him. Um, you know, I think for 48, he was a good pick. I like that pick at 48 better than cab at 27. Um, but I do think he's a better prospect and yeah, it's definitely, you know, we'll put up, we'll produce, uh, more than Manuel. Um, so yeah, I mean, I like both the picks. Um, I was originally fairly skeptical on cab, but I think a lot of draft Twitter probably is with me and overemphasizes stuff like passing and vision over just sheer production in terms of points and rebounds and especially pretty efficient points too. Um, so I think, I think cab is, is, will be better. Um, but I like both of them. I'm excited for all the Florida state fans that will uh, follow us and uh, becoming Florida state West, I guess. Um, oh, we also have Sam Cassell on the coaching staff, which Lawrence Frank yes, uh, mentioned yesterday. And he was apparently extremely excited about this. Um, so if he can teach those guys uh, some of his little pet moves or just to play with the level of swag that Sam had, that would be, that would be great. Um, but I guess just before you go, while we have you, um, the Clippers' most important draft was last year. Um, so, I mean, it's a year later, but, you know, what were kind of your thoughts um, on that draft, you know, Shea and Jerome, and kind of what are your thoughts now on those two guys, also Landry Shamit, I guess, like, you know, what are your impressions of them? Um, you know, and what did you think about, you know, the Clippers development of them just overall, what are, what are your impressions of the Clippers young guys? Cause they're really ultimately Shea and, and Shamit in particular could be more important than cab and man, like 99% of the time, if we play out outcomes. 
Yeah, I, I love the job that they did with both those guys. Those were both guys that I really liked going into last year's draft. I had Gilgis Alexander ranked 11th, which is where he ended up going. And then I had Shamit actually 14th, which is probably among the highest of anybody in draft Twitter. Um, and it was because I, I really bought into his shot versatility, and that proved to be pretty correct in his rookie season. Um, I, I think that both of those guys are really good pieces for them moving forward. I'm excited to see what Shamit grows into as a ball handler in year two. I think that he's going to get more opportunities there and that's going to be really exciting. And I think that Gilgis Alexander is going to continue to grow as a finisher, continue to grow as a, as a defender and have immense versatility on that end. And I think that the Clippers are really well set up to get two really good foundational players for whatever their next iteration looks like um, moving forward out of, out of those two guys. Um, so they, they did a great job. I, th- I think that, I think that Gilgis Alexander was, was a fantastic pick. And I think that picking up Shamit for Tobias Harris is about as good as you could ask for. So those two guys are great and completely make up for the fact that Jerome Robinson is absolutely terrible and is probably not going <laughs> to be the end of his contract. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're not as hyped on Jerome Robinson as many Clipper fans are, but oh man, Clippers yeah. fans have fallen in love with a uh, Brock. Uh, because he looks like Brock from Pokemon. Yeah, when he had when he had eight points consecutively, he he is uh, he has a lot of work to do. So. I've never seen anybody any fan base more excited about eight points. Um. Yeah, <laughs> they they were they were retweeting things I had said about Jerome Robinson on draft night on the night that that game happened. Like I, I, I wow. open up Twitter and I find like that stuff getting retweeted. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess he must be going off. And I, I look at the box score and eight points and two rebounds. Seriously, hey man, but he followed that up with eight points. So I don't know who's the hater, you know? Uh, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, the Clippers, you know, fans always get attached to young guys. Um, you know, as a Cavs fan, I'm sure you know that really well, having drafted so many uh, top yeah. Dion Waiters is still a sore subject. Yeah, I remember that. I remember the epic, you know, Dion Waiters Bradley Beal arguments that used to take place, (laughs) uh, which are pretty bad now. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I, we we love Shea in particular on this podcast, Um, and Shamit, his ability to take threes off the dribble, which he flashed a few times uh, down the stretch, is just crazy exciting. Because having those players is, you know, it's like one of the best things archetypes whatever in the nba uh shooting things off the dribble and 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 particularly valuable with sga like that's the perfect guy you want next to him as as like the the complement to just everything that he has is going to have continue to have struggles with like shamit does everything else that you need a guard to be able to do it's just a a great marriage between those two guys yeah yeah we're we're excited um, and I think that's why, like, you know, we like this draft. It was good. I was I was pretty satisfied with it. But ultimately, I don't think Clippers fans are really that tuned into this one. Uh, they already have their young guys who they're attached to. Um, I could see Cab being, you know, becoming a fat fan favorite because, like you said, his energy and motor. Um, Clippers fans love, you know, Montrezl Harrell, Pat Beverly. Those guys are always, you know, going to be fan favorites. So if he plays with that type of energy, you know, I'm sure he'll get a lot of love too, but Shap, do you have anything, any other questions about the draft or young guys or whatever? No, not really. I, I also love Shay and Shamit. I love them a lot. Um, 
that's pretty much it though. I think Trevor has really done a good job um, elucidating on these two guys that really I know very little about. So thanks so much, Trevor. Yeah. Is there anything you want to plug by the way? Uh, any po- like any other podcast appearances, writing, you know, whatever, whatever. <laughs> um, well, I did, I did five winners and losers from the draft where I, I mean, you can basically come there for me torching the Suns and wizards for their drafts, which were nice all time bad. Um, I would argue um, I'm going to have something out this week that re-ranks my entire big board based on um, kind of factoring in team fit in the same way that I did last year. So kind of moving some guys up and down based on where they, where they, uh, where they ended up or in the case of like Jonte Porter didn't end up. <laughs> um, so I, so I guess be on the lookout for that. That would probably be the biggest thing that I'm going to do in the coming week. Right. Awesome. That's good. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, well, we might hopefully have you on again um, for more Clippers draft stuff because uh, they still do have their first round next year. And, you know, they have the heat pick in 2021. So that's way away, but, you know, that looks like it could be pretty good. Um, All right. Heat helps it stuff, but, yeah. Take it easy. And uh, yeah, we welcome back anytime. All right. Thanks, Trevor. Yep. Uh, We're now going to take an ad break. Uh, That was part one of the podcast. And part two will be with Lucas, who we will bring on to talk about the Clippers free agency and developments that have happened there over the past few days, I guess. And we're back, uh, back with Lucas Hahn. How are you doing, Lucas? I'm good. I can't believe we have to wait a whole other week for free agency, but I'm good. Yeah, free agency is just a terrible, terrible mistress. It's been killing us all. (laughs) Just waiting for it. Lucas, so you posted an article on Clips Nation recently. Um, Maybe throw in some logs on the fire, the the idea of Al Horford coming to the team or the Clippers possibly being the Al Horford team. And there has been some kind of corroborating um, Twitter banter about that with the Mavs telling Mark Stein that they're not really going to interested in giving Horford that four-year deal he's interested in. Uh, so it kind of reduces his possibilities to maybe, you know, just a couple of teams with the Clippers being one of those teams. Talk to us a little bit about Al Horford. I mean, I'm sure people listening to this pod have read your article, but is Al Horford really a possibility for this team? Yeah, I think he's a possibility. Um, there was one report that came out today, the same report actually that where Mark Stein said that, it was not um, that, well, Mark Stein didn't say that the Mavericks are not the team that's going after um, Horford. But what he said is that sources familiar with the Mavericks thinking don't believe that they're the team. So, you know, a little bit of a hedge there, but um, in that same tweet, he said that the expectation is that the deal for Horford is four years and 112 million, which is, you know, a little quite you know a, a good amount higher than what he had previously tweeted which was around four years a hundred million uh, and the reason that's significant in my mind is when I saw the four years 100 million number to me immediately I'm thinking well if the Clippers have a pretty normal offseason meaning they probably cut Sundarius Thornwell and Tyrone Wallace to save money um you know, Patrick Beverly walks in free agency. They don't keep Jermichael Green's $15 million cap hold around. They do extend these qualifying offers to Rodney McGruder and Zubats, right? 
the Clippers would have just about enough cap space left that with raises, they would be able to offer around four years, 101.5 million. So when that four 100 number came out, it kind of stuck out to me as like, this is what the Clippers are capable of doing. Now they go, you know, and they trade for a first round pick in the draft, which comes with like a $1.9 million cap hold that cuts back their cap space a little bit. Now the most that they could offer without moving one of their pre-existing contracts is around four years, 97 million. So quite a bit short of that four one twelve number that Stein is tweeting out. It's possible that Stein is wrong. It's possible that the Clippers, you know, have something lined up. You know, there seem to be indications that they're at least very interested in moving on from Danilo Gallinari, um, even if that's not something that's certain to happen. So there could be additional flexibility created. But right now, I'm a little colder on the Horford trail than I felt like we were maybe 48, 72 hours ago, just based on the information that's been put out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Rob, would you be excited for that that kind of deal? Even 97, one, 97 or 100 so million for Al Horford for four years? Uh, right. I don't know about excited. I love Al Horford. He's been one of my favorite NBA players for probably since fairly shortly after he was drafted, to be honest. Um, unlike most people who I think kind of hated those Joe Johnson Al Horford Hawks teams. I actually thought they were a lot of fun. Like they were never great, but they were just kind of a fun, good team. Um, they were young and up and coming for a while before they became like old and expensive and just good instead of, you know, great or, you know, breakthrough contender. Um, he's really, really good. I think that deal will look awful on the last two years, but you know, it's a deal the Clippers would make if they're getting Kawhi Leonard and they think they could win a championship in the next year or two with, Horford as the second best player on the team behind Kawhi um, and just the incredible defense that that kind of Clippers team would be able to play. Um, So I would be down for it because, you know, again, lost in all the cap stuff is that the whole point is to win a championship. And, you know, if, (laughs) if you win a championship, eating like one or two bad years of a contract is fine. You know, there are still people who are like, well, the Cavs overpaid for J.R. Smith and Tristan Thompson, whatever. It's like the Cavs won a championship. They brought a championship to Cleveland. Like everything afterwards is like, yeah, no, maybe like it would be better if they weren't paying those guys. But it's all kind of just gravy. Like if the Clippers won a championship and they ended up having to pay for Al Horford at age 37, like $27 million or whatever, like I really wouldn't care. Um, So would I be like over the moon excited to pay him like $28 million a year or, or something for the next four years? No. But you know, if you get him and Kawhi and are able to maintain a fairly decent roster around them, like that's a championship contender next year, I think, unless some other, you know, team emerges in free agency looking like an even bigger, bigger winner or sure bet. So, you know, I think if you have Kawhi and you think you can get him, I think it's a move you have to make. Um, and he's still really, really good. Like, he's not quite as good as he was a few years ago. Uh, but he's still, you know, even if he doesn't put up the production to be an all-star, I think he's probably still, like, an all-star level player. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel similarly. I think if we get Kawhi, then definitely I'd be down with getting Horf, even if it's 
kind of a rough, rough deal the last couple of years. I mean, I love Al Horford. I always loved, I loved, I enjoyed those Hawk teams. I always enjoyed watching Josh Smith and Al Horford like, on the same team. Um, and that was like athletic peak Josh Smith too. And he was a fun player at times, but I felt like Al Horford was just a steady yin to his yang and just kind of cleaned up a lot of his messes. And uh, Joe Johnson was kind of brilliant, even though that, that team was obviously not going anywhere. I've always kind of liked Al Horford. Um, he's always been a real steadying presence. I think he was really eye-opening last year, too, uh, against the Celtics, uh, against the uh, the Sixers, rather, in that series that nobody expected them to win. And uh, his ability to kind of take on uh, Joel Embiid when everybody was really crowning them, the Eastern Conference champions even, uh, was was telling Horford's going to be a really nice player next year and probably the year after. So whatever's left from that, if we can get Kawhi, if we can get Kawhi, Lucas, where do you put our chances right now of landing one Kawhi Leonard percentages? Um, so I, I would rather answer a different question, <laughs> which is what is, my, what is my confidence meter about Kawhi? So not necessarily the percentage likelihood Kawhi is going to come because I think that maybe overstates how much I'm pretending to know. Okay. Right. But if we're, you're asking me, where's my confidence meter? Today, right, we're recording this June 21st. My confidence meter would be at 80%. Boy. That's the number I would put on it. Boy. That's my, I, w- I actually had this conversation with someone else via text a couple of hours ago, and that was the number that, that I gave when asked what my confidence meter was. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm sticking with um, for right now is I'm at 80% confidence that Kawhi will be a Clipper. Wow. Rob, are you 80% confident about anything regarding the Clippers? See, the thing with me is I'm the exact opposite, where <laughs> I I think from what I know and just have heard from people and just from reports um, from like Woj, Wendy, whatever, I'd say the odds of him coming here are higher than my confidence level, <laughs> which is probably says not great things about me. Uh, but my confidence level would probably be like 30 to 40 Realistically, I think the chances of him coming are higher than that um, because, look, the Lakers fans and Twitter, which is literally becoming info wars before our eyes, can squawk all they want about Woj and him, you know, sometimes being biased or not being the best reporter or whatever. He is the best and biggest reporter. I'm not saying writer. I'm not saying analyst, whatever, in the NBA right now. And, like, yeah, he's wrong because everybody's wrong. All year – He's been predicting Kawhi will go to the, to the Clippers with pretty strong confidence. Now, could that just be because he's hearing it from the Clippers who are really confident or that he's basically running off of old stuff and there hasn't really been an update, so that's still what he's saying? I think those are both fair possibilities. But still, the fact that Woj is still pretty confident about Kawhi going to the Clippers, you know, even though he says the Raptors have closed the gap, that means there still is a gap. Um, or that if there is, isn't one, that it's neck and neck. So, you know, as long as that's the kind of stuff he's saying and that other guys who are plugged in, like Windhorst, Ramona Shelburne, whatever, are still fairly confident, then I'm still fairly confident. And as long as it's a two-team race, which, you know, it looks like Kawhi will take meetings with other teams. You know, Woj reported yesterday it'd be the Knicks and the Sixers and maybe the Nets and then – Some other people said today it wouldn't be the Sixers and maybe the Lakers. None of those things, like maybe he takes meetings with all of them or some of them, 
those teams seem very far in the rearview mirror. Um, you know, it's not great that he's taking meetings with other teams because you never know what can happen. The Sixers, for example, I think could blow him away if they're like, look, we have Joel Embiid, who's way better, way better than anybody on the Clippers. And honestly, I'd say better than anybody on the Lakers right now um, in a playoff series. And yeah, I will stand by that. Um, you know, that's pretty tempting. Um, and like, you just don't know what can happen. But right now, it's, I'd say it's looking pretty good for the Clippers. It's just my own confidence is not very good just because of natural pessimism and anxiety and whatnot. Um, but I'd say, you know, being logical and putting the confidence aside, I'd say the odds are maybe a little better than 50-50. Just my confidence is, is just low. It's just always low. I'm assuming Kawhi is not coming to the Clippers until I see otherwise, really. I mean, yeah. I hate I hate saying that, but that's just kind of where I'm at. I can't I can't if it happens, I'll be uh, we were talking about this. We'll probably take shots on this pod uh, when that happens. Like, it's going to be kind of a huge deal. So, um, I obviously – I mean, Woj is, is Woj. Every Laker fan just think he's, thinks he's a hater right now. But you can't ignore the fact that he keeps saying all these things about the Clippers. And he is the most plugged-in guy in the league. And that is a reporter. And – I am definitely listening to him. At the same time, I can't let myself think, especially just fresh off a championship. It's just really hard for me to see. If, if, the, if, the, if the Sixers won that second round series, I'd be, I probably would be fairly confident right now. But just as of now, I'm just, it's hard for me to see, despite all the leanings that I've been seeing online. And of course, the Twitter is just a battleground right now. It's just ridiculous. So... We'll see. I don't know. I think I think it's fair to be confident. I can completely understand somebody being confident in the idea of him coming, and I can also completely understand the idea of just never trusting anything ever good happening to the Clippers because we're just uh, pessimists and just sad, sad people. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that kind of happened, a much smaller occurrence, but it's something uh, we kind of discussed on Clips Nation was – uh, Harrison Barnes opted out of his uh, deal with the Kings. He's going to be right. an unrestricted free agent. And there's some idea he could be like a second banana type um, to Kawhi Leonard, obviously, if the Clippers get Kawhi Leonard. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I don't know if I've heard from you, Shap, about the Harrison Barnes thing. I know Lucas is is kind of a fan at the right price, but what do you think about that? I like Harrison Barnes. Um, I'm probably a bigger fan of Harrison Barnes than a lot of people. I think, I think him and Kawhi and their switchability and, and uh, maybe, you know, if we play Trez at the five to close with him, Kawhi and Shea and Shamit. And I, uh, I think it's really intriguing and he's going to get a, a nice deal. So maybe he's going to be too expensive regardless, but you know, I never thought of him as a bad player. I thought his warriors role was perfect for him where he was that spot-up shooter that could occasionally take on bigger responsibilities if needed to, but not often asked to. You know, his his last playoff run was really, really bad with the Warriors, but I thought he was he was a very, very valuable asset. And while, you know, a second banana is higher up than, you know, the third banana he was with the Warriors, I I would I kind of like the idea of him being a possibly 
a second option after if Horford doesn't fall through, and he's much younger than Horford. So, you know, Harrison Barnes hit a big three against us in game one against the, against the Clippers in that series that we ended up winning. He hit that three that pretty much won them the game. It kind of turned everything when the Clippers went on their huge run and Chris Paul had that three that put us in the lead briefly. Um, so he can hit shots, you know, and he had great percentages as a warrior, even though things kind of fell apart at the end. I like, I like Harrison Barnes. I don't know where my cap would be um, as far as a contract to give him. Lucas, where, where does the buck kind of stop with your idea of Harrison Barnes being a Clipper? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, like there are some people on Twitter, like the second that we even started to mention Harrison Barnes when he opted out, they're like, oh, Harrison Barnes is bad. And Harrison Barnes is not bad. Harrison Barnes is pretty good. And you, you know, you guys both kind of, I think, just mentioned that, you know, some of the things that he can bring. But I think that just in terms of like when we're talking second banana, I think Horford is a whole tier and a half above Harrison Barnes. If you're talking like who's going to be the second best player on your championship team. Right. And I have a, I can see Harrison Barnes being a really good contributor to a championship team. It's hard for me to see him being the second best player on a championship team. Now, of course, you know, Kawhi is just good enough, right. That you don't necessarily need that traditional second star. Like, I don't think Lowry or Siakam this year were at the level that we normally think of as number two on a championship team needing to be. But at the same time, I feel a lot better about investing, about saying we're going to overpay Al Horford because it really increases our championship window than I do about saying, oh, we're going to overpay Harrison Barnes because it increases our championship window. I think that Barnes could be a contributor, but if adding him limits your ability to potentially go get a true number two guy somewhere in the near future, that would be kind of a rough, um, you know, a rough decision for me. I think if you have an opportunity, let's say to work out like a sign and trade with Al Horford, where Gallinari goes to Boston and Horford comes to the Clippers, I have no reason to think that that's, you know, necessarily a possibility, but if you could do something like that, and say you could add potentially, um, or even if you just trade Gallinari anywhere, and let's say you sign Horford and then sign Barnes to, um, to a reasonable deal, and now Barnes is, you know, he's, he's going to score more than Horford, but he's really going to be number three in terms of, like, importance to, you know, who's most valuable to what the team does. That, I think, could really work. Um, but having, giving him big money, let's say, if Kawhi comes and signs a four-year deal and you give Harrison Barnes like a four-year $80 million or more contract this summer, now all of a sudden we're talking about you're basically investing that whole championship window of Kawhi's prime into Harrison Barnes being good enough to be the number two player on a title team. That's a really scary bet for me, I think. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uneasy with, with that possibility. Lucas, while we were talking about the confidence level of Kawhi being a Clipper, what's your confidence level of Daniel Gallinari being a Clipper in October? Um, by October, I would say there's still a decent chance of it. I think um, Jovan Buha did a Q&A 
like a live Q and a chat this week with subscribers at the athletic where he said that he thinks Gallinari will definitely be gone by the trade deadline. Hmm. So that kind of vibes with what we've seen from this Clippers front office in terms of they don't like to have their own good players going into free agency where they may have to overpay to keep them. So if you know that you're going to try to move Gallo midseason um, and you know that Gallo is the guy who gets hurt a lot, then it makes a lot of sense to try to move him now. I also think it makes a lot of sense to try to move him now because it just gives you way more to play with as you are trying to sort of build out this roster um, around, you know, hopefully around Kawhi Leonard. And then let's say you do get Kawhi Leonard. Well, we know that Kawhi is a guy who's had health problems of his own, who wants to be load managed and maybe sit 20 games. And let's say you get Al Horford to be the number two. If you sign Al Horford for four years at 33 years old, it would be very, very prudent to also try to limit his minutes and sit him like on back-to-backs, for example. So now you're already talking, maybe your starting small forward is going to miss 15 to 20 games. Maybe your starting center is going to miss 15 to 20 games. Do you really want to be rolling with Gallinari at the four when Gallinari is a coin flip to miss 30 games in a given year? I think the Clippers might be content to downgrade talent wise at that position to get better odds of having someone who's going to play 70 or 80 games. Yeah. I think that's fair. Gallinari. Gallinari is tough because we've all obviously loved him. I think we're all kind of emotionally attached to the season he just had, but especially hearing Jovan say that it's uh, I think it's pretty fair to say that the Clippers will be looking to move him or will be open to offers for him for the foreseeable future. Um, Rob, I mean, (laughs) we've both been kind of nailed as uh, Gallo skeptics, I suppose, through the season because we've mentioned his, his his ball stopping tendencies. But the idea of moving Gallo, the idea of Gallo maybe being on this team with Kawhi and maybe even Gallo being the secondary um, player. If we can't sign people around Kawhi, say we sign Kawhi and just get supporting pieces. I mean, what, what are your thoughts just on Gallo, his future with the Clippers, his potential even, say he stays, his potential as maybe a second banana to even someone like Kawhi Leonard or just maybe in general as being still the, that 1A type of guy that we've kind of seen him be this last half season? I think he's certainly good enough to be that guy. With Gallo, it's all about injuries. Right. You know, this last season was the healthiest season he's had in, like, five years, I think. Maybe maybe even longer. I think it was since, like, 2012, 13 or whatever. He's just been a historically very injury-prone guy. I think he just turned 30. His frame is not one that you'd expect to, you know, it's one that you kind of expect to be injury-prone. He's tall, not super bulky. Um you know, especially as the NBA trends smaller, though it could trend again larger out the influx of centers, you know, he's playing against bigger dudes and for a guy with his frame, that's tough. So the injuries are really where it's at. In terms of actual level of play, I mean, I think I agree with, with you guys that Harrison Barnes is good. I'm probably a little bit that more down on him than you guys are, but he's a good player. But Gallo is way better. Um you know, I think I've seen a couple of people saying Harrison Barnes would be an upgrade. Maybe three or four years from now, you know, I could see that. But 
as of this last year, Gallo is a much better player. He's better at creating his own shot. He's a better defender. He's a better passer. He's better at basically everything except, yeah. But I think just everything. I think he's better at everything than Harrison Barnes. <laughs> um, I need to do a deep dive into, like, you know, types of numbers and, you know, really looking at, you know, the finer details. But just from a broad perspective, there's very little that Harrison Barnes does that Gallo doesn't do better. Um, he's a better scorer. He's a more efficient scorer. Just, I mean, Gallo was a top 30 player this year. Harrison Barnes was like, you know, at worst he was top 75, but I don't think many people would put him top 50. He's somewhere in like the 60 range, maybe like he's a pretty good starter. Certainly. Um, you know, cause I mean, if you think they're 30 NBA teams, you know, if you average that out, you know, on most teams, he's, you know, your second or third best starter, on good teams, he's your third. On bad or mediocre teams, he's your second. But Gallo was the best player on a pretty good team this year. So if you figure if you slot in Kawhi, he could be the second best on a really good team next year. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he's older than Barnes. He's much more injury-prone than Barnes. I think Barnes – I need to look it up, but I think Barnes is actually kind of an Iron Man. Yeah. Um, I don't think he misses a lot of games. I'm looking this up right now. And that is definitely a big advantage. But if you're looking, again, if you think the Kawhi window is the next year or two, I'd rather have Gallinari than Harrison Barnes. Um, yeah. You know, the key with Gallinari is, and the reason why Jermichael Green is so important, is you need to have a good backup because Allo will miss time. And Kawhi is going to miss time because of his load management. Yeah, Harrison Barnes is crazy. He's never missed more than 16 games in a season. And most years he's missed, every other year he's missed less than five. Um, he's been incredible. Yeah, which is legitimately really valuable. It's what we always used to say about DeAndre Jordan, which is the best skill is availability. Like, if you can't play, then you're useless. Um, and, you know, with Gallo and Kawhi, you're going to have an injury-prone and frequently absent front court, which is bad. But the upside is much better than with Harrison Barnes. So, you know, again, like, if you sign Al Horford, um, you know, if you're able to straight up sign him and not do sign trade for Gallo, then I think you probably should keep Gallo because then you're really going all in on the next two years. And I think Gallo helps you out more then, but it's, it's a really tough debate, I think. And again, like Gallo, you know, one more injury could really slow him down a lot. Um, you know, maybe just in general, he slows, um, you know, he looked pretty good this year, but he's 30. Um, he's a guy who, you know, forgetting to the free throw line relies being at least a little bit quicker than most big men. Um, as soon as that quickness advantage goes down he's only going to rely on tricks which will still help but that'll cut into his efficiency um yeah i, I don't know I'd, I'd rather have gallo i think but the argument for trading him and selling him while his value is high is a very good one because again this was his best season ever it's one of his healthiest seasons ever and there's very little there's very low chance that he replicates that so flipping him is probably the smart move um, but you might end up taking an overall step back in terms of the quality of team, uh, especially in the next year or two. Yeah, kind of selling while the iron is hot is kind of, I feel like everybody's general vibe on Gallo, as great of a clipper and as memorable as a clipper as he was this past season. Um, Lucas, do you have any more thoughts before we think about going to Twitter questions? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, with regards to Gallo, I agree with, with Rob that Gallo is better than Harrison Barnes. Um, but I do think that, that there's some – with where his value is right now, I mean, a year ago, remember, we were thinking, man, the Clippers are going to have a lot of trouble getting 
out of this Gallo contract if they want to have two max deals next summer. And now we're potentially talking about, you know, might they be able to get a small asset back for it? So the, the year that he had was amazing, but that also points towards why it's probably wiser to try to move on sooner than later. Like he played 68 games last year. That's the most he's played since 2013. And in the 2004, or then, you know, he tore his ACL, didn't play in 2014, has never played this many games until last year he played 68. He had, at this point, you know, 10 years into his NBA career, career high in points, career high in rebounds. Uh, the only time that he's ever had more assists was, again, almost a decade ago in 2012, he had 2.7 a game. And then this season he had 2.6 a game. And the only time he's ever shot better from three was in 2009 um, in his rookie season where he only played 28 games. So like this was, this was the Gallinari year. This is the best year of his career. I think by a pretty decent margin, he got all NBA votes. Um, I don't think that Gallinari is going to, Use the sirens in the background. Oh, I don't think Gallinari is going to have this year again. I don't think he will be as good, and I don't think he will play as many games. So, you know, I, I really, really understand the impulse of the Clippers to move on, especially if they can deal him this summer and then have that cap space to go after whoever they want to go after. Um, you know, for $23 million, let's say you use, like, the other – 24 million that's left over to get Al Horford, right? You have this 23 million for Gallinari. There's a lot of different things that you can do with that. And, you know, maybe you go get Harrison Barnes, who is probably going to cost like 18 to 20, I would think. Um, so most of it. But you could also go after someone at that four position a little bit cheaper for a little bit longer of a deal um, and then have money left over to keep a guy around like. J. Michael Green. So it gives them a lot more options, I think, if they move him. And I, I just really worry if he comes back, he won't play 68 games again and he won't be this good again. Yeah, I don't think anybody really thought, thinks that. I think Rob and I last year were thinking that we would be lucky to get 60. And I think almost everybody were, was thinking that, that we'd be lucky to get 60. I think we said even on the pod that if we played 60-plus games, we'd make the playoffs. And that's how – Kind of that's where the rubric in the, was for as far as the games he'd play. So I love Gallo, but I agree with you guys. I think his best season was the season we just saw, and great for him. But I also am leaning towards wanting to deal him. In fact, really, that's what I think I was looking for the most. Draft night wasn't necessarily the picks, but seeing if we could flip Gallo for maybe like a late first round, a first rounder or something along those lines. Didn't quite happen, but that's okay. Doesn't mean it won't happen. Um. Yeah. Do we have any Twitter questions, Rob, for for Lucas? We only had a couple. Uh, I think Twitter is kind of a little calm today after the draft yesterday. I know yeah. I'm tired and just I've been writing like all day and just free agency is just a nightmare. And yeah. I don't know how Lakers fans deal with this every year because I understand why they're crazy now. Because if I had to deal with this type of free agency stuff every year, uh, I would go crazy too. Um. So we really, I think we only have two questions. One of them I think was actually more for Trevor, uh, but we can throw this out there to you guys too. Um, from Don John at John Evans 57, what path do you foresee to the draft picks getting playtime this year? 
ceiling slash floor. Um, probably for you guys, unless you really want to go to ceiling floor, probably just the first question is more relevant. So yeah, Lucas, you can go first, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, well, so the, I guess the easy answer would be that Terrence Mann probably doesn't play a lot this year. Um, you know, as a second round pick, he's not guaranteed to even make the roster and he definitely, I would say, um, is not guaranteed to make the 15-man roster. He probably has pretty high odds of either snagging one of those last bench spots on the 15-man roster or getting put into a two-way deal where the Clippers can bring him back and forth between you know the big team and Agua Caliente. But you know, yeah, I don't see a path really towards playing time for him this year. Although it could be possible if he winds up being like the third-string small forward and you wind up getting Kawhi Leonard and Kawhi is going to sit 20 games for load management, maybe that means that there's 20 games that Terrence Mann gets 12 minutes off the bench. But I also think if you get Kawhi and you know Kawhi is going to sit 20 games, then the Clippers probably build a roster where they have a more proven built-in option to kind of fill in in those minutes. And then I think um, with, with regards to Cabin Jelly, I would expect that he does not get penciled into a rotation role. I know it's really easy to get excited about guys. um, And I'm glad that Clippers fans seem excited, but remember we're talking, you know, at the 27th overall pick frame of reference, we're talking like the CJ Wilcox, Bryce Johnson, Reggie Bullock range here. So not necessarily someone that you can expect to come in and be ready to have a positive impact as a role player on a team that's hoping to be good next year. So I think the Clippers probably put him in a situation where he's going to have to earn minutes. And if he earns minutes, he'll get them. So I think, you know, a good example, because he can play the five a little bit, Zubat is not really going to do anything special for you. He's there. And I think, you know, we've talked about this at length. He's there because he's big and he's solid and he's cheap. And he can play some minutes and then Trez can come in off the bench and do his thing. So let's say Cabangeli comes in and has, you know, just from the jump in training camp is just really, really impressing the coaching staff, playing really, really well. Well, Zubats definitely, I think, has poachable minutes on this team. Um, and similarly, I mean, when you see, like, if you think back to two seasons ago, um, so right when we're coming into this season, right, when we've gotten Gallinari and Tay Dosich and Beverly after trading Chris Paul, Beverly and Tay Dosich were the Clippers' two starting guards coming into that season. And coming into this most recent season, Beverly was the starting point guard and Tay Dosich was the backup point guard. So the Clippers also had Avery Bradley and Lou Williams at the shooting guard position. So Shea, Gilg- Shea Gilgis-Alexander did not have guaranteed minutes on day one of training camp. But he played well enough in training camp in the preseason and then early in the regular season that by the time we got to opening night, he knew he was going to be in the rotation. And very shortly thereafter, he was in the starting lineup for the rest of the year. To the extent that the team ended up kind of driving away a veteran in Milos Dedosic who stopped really traveling with or being around the team um, and ended up, you know, off of the team mid-season. So... I think that, you know, you put a guy in a situation where if he earns those minutes, if he comes in and he can do it, 
then yeah, whoever ends up being the Clippers backup for this year might have to take a seat so that the young guy can play. But he's not a guy who I think the team is going to pencil into that 10-man rotation headed into training camp by any means. Yeah, I pretty much agree with that for the most part. Um, I do think that there's maybe a way for uh, Cam Gelly to get more uh, more substantial minutes than um, than Man. Man, like Rob was kind totally. of mentioning, like Rob was kind of mentioning earlier, Man could maybe get some really niche Cinderella Thornwell type minutes, but I don't, I don't even know about that particularly. Um, it is nice to have a big wing finally, <laughs> considering we've been having these small guys kind of masquerading as our three uh, for quite some time. Patrick Beverly guarding somebody like Kevin Durant, even if, if he's getting doubled every time over. Uh, we haven't really had a wing with size, so you would kind of think that maybe Mann could have some more opportunity, but I, I don't see it. I think Mann's going to be a bit of a project. Kevin Gelly could, of course, impress because our big rotation isn't particularly impressive. Uh, Trez, of course, is going to be penciled for about 30 minutes, but Zubat, like we saw, he is, you know, if we do bring him back, like Lucas mentioned, he might he might lose minutes if Kevin Gelly is particularly impressive. So it is definitely something to watch. I don't I don't know if either of them, you know, neither of them is a Shea Gilders Alexander, obviously. Like Shea had starting potential even when he was initially coming off the bench. Doc had some I wouldn't say abnormally high confidence levels in him, but you could tell that Doc liked him right away. He was giving him minutes right away, even when he was coming off the bench, closing some games with him too. Um so it's it's hard to see Camigelli having quite the impact that Shea has or even the root that Shea has, considering we have somebody like Montrez Harrell, who is kind of a similar type of player with a similar type of motor, who does a lot of similar things aside from, you know, being able to shoot the three, which he's working on. So who knows? Maybe, maybe Trez will be able to shoot some threes when he comes in this season. But considering he has such a similar kind of, I wouldn't say doppelganger, but a kind of similar all-energy type of player that is in front of him and is probably one of the best all-energy players in the game. I wouldn't pencil in Kevin Gelly even for significant minutes, but he does have an easier route compared to man. Yeah. Uh, you guys have, have said a lot on this. So I don't really have too much to add. Um, you know, again, I do see like there maybe being a role for man. Um, like Trevor said, you know, the shooting is pretty key. I don't think he gets any real minutes unless he can demonstrate he's a, at least a threat to shoot and hit shots. Um, but I could see niche minutes here or there. Kevin Gully, I'm a little more down on his immediate role just because I think the defense and just his feel is really rough. And I'm not sure he's going to be playable on a really good team for significant minutes. Like, I think he'll be able to produce with points and rebounds, but I think the rest of his fit. Um, and especially defense will take a little bit longer. But I could see him getting rotation minutes here or there, especially if they bring back Zubat. And he struggles offensively, um, and the Clippers need more shooting or just you know a more active player offensively, I think Cab would be a better uh, backup than, than Zubats would be for Montrose Harrell. But yeah. Um, and then ceiling floor quickly from, you know, the little that I've watched, I'd say ceiling for Cab is probably, I think you guys have mentioned Serge Ibaka. Um, that's a real, like, prime Serge Ibaka is very much, you know, that's like a top-level ceiling for him. I don't think he's going to be that good defensively. Uh, and then floor, 
would be pretty bad um, uh, out of the NBA in a couple years type of floor. Um, and then for man, I'd say ceiling would be like – he's a tough comp actually um, because maybe like Damari Carroll um, would be like a ceiling, like a guy who can hit some threes, is smart offensively, um, pretty good defender, not great defender. And then floor would also be out of the NBA as a guy, just like a bigger, even worse offensively than Darius Thornwell. Um, okay, my next, my next question. The next question, and I think the last question, is for my dad, uh, which is, if KD and Kawhi stay where they are, causing other free agents to become pricier, um, how deep into their pockets do the Clippers go for Pat Beverly or maybe Horford? If they go elsewhere but not Clippers, then what? Uh, so I think – First of all, if Katie and Kawhi aren't coming to the Clippers, neither is Al Horford. <laughs> um, their signing him is contingent on them getting Kawhi in particular because it would be about them winning a championship this season and maybe next season. The Pat Beverly thing is interesting. Um, I'm not sure how much, you know, if they don't get a max reagent and they have room, I think it is more likely that they keep him. Uh, but it also could be that they decide they want to pivot more into a rebuild and they don't need a 30-year-old guard when they already have three young guards on their roster. Uh, so I'm, I'm really not sure about that. And if they don't get a max reagent, I think they'll probably sign some veterans to shorter-term deals. Maybe it is Beverly, but just on a one- or two-year deal, paying them even more um, on a per-year basis, and then just try to field a competitive team next year. I could also see them really going more into rebuild. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think Bobby Marks mentioned, and we mentioned on Clips Nation, that, that uh, Pat could demand, or command rather, 14 to $15 million on the market, which is a lot um, for Pat. <laughs> um, I think we were all kind of thinking he'd be 10 to 12, you know, 12 million, and I think that was reasonable. You know, 15 million on a short deal is maybe okay too if we struck out on everybody, because you know, whatever we say about Pat, and he's going to be expensive, it sounds like. He was the heart and soul of this team. Even without Kawhi, even if we struck out completely, having Pat just here for our rookies and for our kids and just kind of motivating everybody to be on their toes all the time and just really being locked in is a very useful thing and kind of goes beyond the money and his intangibles are, are fantastic. So I could see them maybe signing, uh, signing Pat to like a short deal, a couple of years maybe three years, you know, for, I thought 12 million was, was the number, but boy, you know, a lot of people are going to have pockets this summer and people are going to offer, probably going to offer Beverly a decent amount of money. Even the Lakers, you know, if they, if they end up just having their 23 to 27 million, depending on Anthony Davis's trade kicker, they're, they're probably going to come hard at Beverly for like, you know, at least $12 million or so the opportunity to start, you know, um, and not even move. So um, there are teams that are definitely going to come at Pat hard. I don't. I don't know where my cap would be for for Beverly. You know, I initially thought twelve million was was even kind of pricier for a three year deal, but I would do it knowing Beverly. You know, fifteen, sixteen million. You know, if we did that for every year for three years, and we don't get anybody else, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. I probably would still think about doing it just because he's Pat Beverly and he's been the heart and soul of this team. But it, that is a, that is a pretty, a pretty penny. I, I don't know how excited I'd be for it. I also agree. Horford is not, is a, 
is not even a question to come on this team if we're not getting uh, Kawhi or Katie. What about you, Lucas? Yeah, I think the question is maybe less about how much the Clippers are willing to give. Um, I think it has more to do with duration. So I, I think if the Clippers strike out on the top tier guys this summer, I don't think they're giving anyone three years um, unless they get a, like a really good bargain. Like Lou Williams, you know, the Clippers didn't want to compromise cap space to sign Lou Williams, but Lou Williams gave them three years at 8 million per. So they, they took it right. Um, if Patrick Beverly is going to give you three years at 8 million per, you would sign that. But it seems like, um, and totally, you know, right for him to go this path and try to secure his money. Um, but it seems like he's not going to be giving the Clippers like some sort of big hometown discount or whatever. So, you know, for me, it's less about is Pat going to make 12 per or 15 per or whatever. It's more about how many years is he going to make it for? Cause I could easily see the Clippers doing something like two thirty for Pat, because like you said, He's the heart and soul of this team, but also Patrick Beverly, both at this next deadline and next summer and the deadline after that would have positive trade value for contending teams looking to, you know, add that piece. We need guard depth. Someone got hurt and we need to fill in guard for the playoff run, whatever it is. Um, Patrick Beverly has positive trade value. So I think that's maybe where we would see the Clippers pivoting is not towards a full youth movement tank type of situation, just because we know that that's not really the style. Um, I think, you know, I I honestly think that that sort of decision-making, which we saw last year, right, when they decided to kind of stick and push for the playoffs instead of going for a better draft pick, um, I think that that has – it starts with Steve Ballmer, and that's probably something that's not likely to change. So I think the Clippers in in that case, you do re-sign Patrick Beverly, but then you might end up in a situation in February similar to the one that the Clippers were in with Tobias Harris this February where you go, well, Pat's one of our best players and it's going to hurt our odds at this current playoff push to move him, but we're getting good enough value that we're going to do it anyway. And Ballmer would probably be on board with a deal like that, just like he signed off on the Tobias Harris. So I think we, then we see the Clippers looking at two-year deals because the 2020 free agent class doesn't, really inspire much hope 2021 you know paul george anthony davis bradley beal etc um sorry not anthony davis um but uh Giannis Giannis. is up in 2021 yeah so so i think the clippers and you you know back to jovan jovan also said when the clippers sort of started this post blake and chris rebuild they didn't think it would go this quick they had their eyes on 2021 all along so if 2019 ends up being a strikeout I think the Clippers say, okay, that's fine. We're just back to 2021, which is where we had our sights set originally. So I don't think they position themselves to really have max space again next summer, but they definitely position themselves for max or double max space in 2021, um, possibly by signing guys to value deals that then they think they'll be able to trade over the next couple of years. And I'll also add that that summer, 2021, the 2021 to 2022 season will be the last year that Shea and Landry are on their really low rookie salary deals. So if there's a summer where you're going to go get guys with cap room, that would be it because starting the next year, Shea and Landry are both going to presumably be on much bigger deals. Uh, You know, their second contract with the team in 
coming off of restricted free agency or signing extensions before they hit restricted free agency. So right. 2021, summer of 2021 is kind of the, the clock I think is ticking towards that where if you don't get help by 2021, then you're put into, well, are we really going to pay Shay and Landry, you know, maybe combined $40 million plus a year if we don't have a star in here for them to play with and it's going to limit our options to get a star in. So, yeah, I think, I, you know, I think the Clippers, they'll spend, they'll use all their money this summer. They'll use Pat Beverly's bird rights to go well over the cap and pay them $15 million if they strike out. But it'll only be for two years um, because that potentially allows them to recoup value and continue competing while they sort of wait for 2021. Right. I think, I think when Shea and Shamit's deals are running out, your mentality stops going from let's go get guys to let's keep guys. So I, I think that's kind of the idea with those rookie deals because keeping guys, kind of like the Warriors have been doing, you know, is much easier if you already have the guys and you're able to go over the cap with deal, people you already have on your team. Um, yeah. Uh, I think that that's it for Twitter questions, right, Rob? Uh, yeah, sorry. It is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. And I don't, I don't think there's really that much else to discuss right now. Um, I, have a, I have a question for you, Rob. What? <laughs> I have a question. So you, cause you did the, um, the like kind of best case, worst case for the rookies. Yeah. And while you were talking about uh, Terrence Mann, I was kind of thinking, what do you think about like a Andre Roberson mm. for Terrence, Terrence Mann? I don't think he's as good on the defensive end as Roberson. But um, that could be kind should of be better off. It's interesting to think about for me. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, okay. that's a solid comp. I think Roberson is a little taller, and I think he's longer um, because Man is—he's close to six seven or six eight, I think. Uh, but his wingspan isn't that great; it's only an inch longer than his height. I think Roberson might be six nine. And I think he might have like a six eleven or seven foot wingspan, which really does matter. Um, and I'm yeah, I think people forget Roberson came out as a four. Yeah, like he 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 was a four all through college, and then you know that was kind of why his draft stock was so low is because the thing is you're going well he's not going to be able to play the four in the NBA so where do you where do you put him which is something that you know the Clippers have had with a bunch of, I mean Tendarius Thornwell is the guy who was like that coming out of the draft that's why his stock was so low um, you know going back a little bit further Travis Leslie was a guy who you're going well he's going to have to play the two in the NBA but he's never been a two in his life so um, yeah. Yeah, Roberson averaged like eleven and eleven, didn't he? Wasn't that like his college stats? Yeah, he was did super well. He, he's in a, my yeah, analysis because of his rebounding. Yeah, yeah, and him and Westbrook as a point guard shooting guard pair is like a ridiculous rebounding combination. Yeah, even if neither of them can hit a jumper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's. I mean, you'd hope man can be at least a threat to shoot. Like Roberson isn't even a threat. Um, and I think he's probably a slightly better ball handler than Roberson is too. But yeah, I mean, that's an interesting comp. That's like a pretty good, it depends on your, your mileage on Roberson. Like I think as great as his defense is, he's so bad offensively that he's not ultimately like that valuable. I mean, though it is different. Mm-hmm. Next to Westbrook. If he was playing next to like, you know, Dame or Steph or like even like Kyle Lowry, he might look more valuable within a better space team. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, a pretty good upside comp for him. Um, You know, Roberson will be a better, you know, is a better defender, but you know, that type of player certainly is there. 
I I like man, like, you know, again, like I don't think he's going to be a star or, or, I mean, I don't think either of them will be, you don't, you don't get stars generally that late in the draft, but like, I think he could yeah. be a player, which for 48, you know, can't really ask for much more than that. Like, honestly, I would have taken him over some of the guys that were picked like 20 picks ahead of him, which says more about the other team's drafts than about him or whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't and I think there's too much else to discuss. You know, the draft is over. Um, the Clippers are going to fill out their summer league roster. There's already been a couple guys. Isaac Humphreys has been reported to be on their team for weeks now. Um, we'll have a brief thing on him tomorrow. I wrote about O'Shea Brissett today, who was like looking at his numbers. He was not very good at Syracuse. Uh, just judging by the numbers, I hate watching Syracuse. Uh, sorry, Lucas, uh, because um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, <laughs> you don't you don't appreciate good defense. <laughs> oh god um they control the tempo they control the tempo oh, god. <laughs> um but yeah i haven't seen him play really outside of just you know everyone's not just on just randomly on a tv um but his stats are not particularly good outside of his rebounding which is very good uh and i think that's really all we know about non-clippers players so maybe there'll be an intriguing guy there or two but Almost all the good undrafted free agents were snagged yesterday, uh, which makes sense because there's really not much room on the roster for them. They all want to go to teams that have more um, availability for them um, and more playing opportunities. So we'll see. Uh, but outside of that, you know, I'm sure there'll be tons of rumors about Kawhi and Durant and everything else. And most of it will probably be bullshit, but, you know, we'll keep reporting about it. And, uh, yeah, I-, I don't have too much else. <laughs> yeah. You have anything else to mention, Lucas? No, I think that's uh, you know I'm all good. I'm ready for you know a week of sitting around waiting for something to happen that's not going to happen, and then hopefully next Sunday the thirtieth. Uh, well, not hopefully, guaranteed. Please. next Sunday the thirtieth should be a really action-packed day. Yeah, uh, and- even if it's not for the Clippers, even if it's bad news regarding people the Clippers are targeting, there is no way that. The, and the, the NBA moved free agency earlier, which is going to be amazing um, from like mine and Rob's perspective. Where you know normally we're up until like I yeah I so on the West Coast with free agency starting at midnight Eastern, so 9 p.m. on the West Coast, I would normally be up writing until at least 2 a.m. that first night. Um, and so I was actually pretty worried uh, being on the East Coast for free agency this year that I would like was going to be up all night, but then not going to wake up early enough July 1st to like get the morning round of news. Um, but with them moving it up a few hours, I think it's starting at 6 p.m. Eastern on Sunday now. Um, should be quiet by – the, the normal big burst of action right at the beginning should be over, and I should be, have some time to write, and I should be able to go to sleep at like a normal human sleeping time to wake up for Monday morning's first full day of free agency. Um, so yeah, I love free- that first week of July is like the most fun time of the year. Yeah, it's going to be pretty hyped. And uh, so it's not going to start for another 10 days or so. Well, not 10 days, but a little bit over a week. And then we'll finally get people signing. We'll finally have some finality to this long drawn out, uh, drawn out Kawhi saga that's happened pretty much from the second we got eliminated against the Warriors. So that'll be something to look forward to. And I think that'll do it for this episode of the Law of the Jam, the podcast as always. Uh, subscribe and review on whatever you listen to us to. 
uh, we'll see you guys soon. We're not, we're not quite done yet. Uh, we'll have a lot to talk about. Stay tuned to Clips Nation for some more articles uh, that are going to be coming out definitely over the next few days, just detailing the kids that we drafted and the, and the upcoming free agency. This week is going to be painful, but we'll get through it together. And as always, go Clippers!